begin a, a short series uh, over the next few weeks called Hope for the Nations as we talk about what God is doing around the globe. And that hope is not just for people who live on other places of the world, the unreached people groups. Some would call them the darkest places on earth. But if you talk to people uh, in, around the world who at least have access to television and radio and things like that, and internet, do you know what country they might say was the darkest? Ours. Ours. It's not that we don't have access to the light, it's what we've done with the light as a society. The post-Christian West is sometimes what we're referred to as. That is that Christianity has had its way and now we're on the, we're on the back end of that. We're in a post-Christian society. Many years ago, you, you, you may remember some of you in places around the United States, the thing, such a thing as blue, what they called blue laws, what they were called? Where on Sundays, businesses could not be open. You had to, as a society, if you were a business owner, you had to observe the Sabbath in one way or another. Uh, citizens of the United States were expected to observe the Sabbath. Today, I see pastors on social media bemoan the fact that their, their own church members and their own church members' families and kids uh, decide that they will go to church once a month and the rest of the month they're on the road with softball tournaments or basketball tournaments or livestock shows or whatever is your thing. It is quite arguably true that the United States is becoming darker and we are becoming less dependent upon God or at least as a society uh, we have traded commercialism and wealth and ourselves and looking out for number one we have traded spirituality as a whole and seeking God for these new things but as we'll discover today all hope is not lost there is still hope there's still hope for you there's still hope for our nation there's still hope for the people that live in your community in your household there's still hope for your sons and your daughters amen there is still hope for your fathers and your mothers and your grandfathers and your grandmothers and your great-grandchildren. There is still hope. Why? Because Jesus is on his throne. He lives. Amen? And even in the darkest of times, and regardless of what stage of life you're in or what kinds of things you're experiencing, there is hope. Not just for the nations, but for you and for your neighbor and for those closest to you. This morning in Luke chapter 7, we're reminded of a story, a true story, not a parable, a true story of Jesus interacting with a particular man and a particular woman. And our focus this morning, focus of our text is going to be in verse 36 through 50. And then we're going to go back to Isaiah and revisit Isaiah 40, which we read the first half of a while ago with our Advent. But starting off in verse 36, if you'll open up your Bibles there to Luke 7, 36. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. And the Bible says, Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And he entered the Pharisee's house and reclining at the table... And behold, there was a woman 
in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, and one owed 500 denarii, and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since, she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And Father, I ask, Lord, as we open up your word, that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would have ears to hear, that we would have hearts to receive your word today. Oh God, would you pierce our hearts again? Grow us and teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There are reasons to hope. Hope is a word that may be thrown around today. We, we like for everyone to be hopeful, don't we? We like for everyone to anticipate good things. Um, I rag on Disney movies a lot, okay? Uh, but that's one thing that you'll see in Disney movies a lot is just this constant positivity, right? The good guy always wins. The princess always prevails, whatever it might be. And there's this constant flow of hope, giving hope, giving hope, and giving hope over and over and over. But sometimes when we extend hope it's in an unreasonable fashion. Because there's nothing to be hopeful for if where we stand is in right relationship with God and right relationship with each other and in the perfect sinless condition that sometimes we think that we're in. There's no reason for hope. The Christian hope that the Word of God talks about that the gospel proclaims is a hope with teeth 
It means something. It's reasonable. It makes sense. And we see it here in this passage. We see a human being here who invites Jesus into his home who thinks he has absolutely no reason to hope. What does he have to look forward to? What is he expecting from Jesus? What does he have to gain? He is simply sitting in the corner of the room with his arms crossed, questioning Jesus in his mind. Is he really who everybody says he is? And then there's a woman who comes in who we see demonstrates what is real, reasonable hope. She demonstrates her hopefulness through her actions. She lays it all on the line. And God gives us his picture so that we see that we are people who constantly need hope. Because we're constantly sinners. We're not perfect this side of heaven. We're counted righteous. But we're only counted righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We are accounted as righteous before God. We are justified forensically in God's sight because of what Jesus did for us. But we still struggle with sin. Amen? We still struggle with sin. And so there's reason for us to have hope and to be hopeful if we realize that fact. That we are people at the mercy of Jesus every step of our journey. Now we struggle with this, don't we? Because we want to grow, we want to mature, we want to excel, we want to move forward in our faith. How many of you want to be a mature Christian? Raise your hand. How many of you want to grow in your faith? Raise your hand. Yeah. It's one of the things that we focus on, we lift up high in this church because Paul says in one of his letters to the churches, he says, you know, by now I should be able to give you meat to eat. He's using this, this metaphor of like a child who's growing and kids go through that teething phase, right? And man, once they get those teeth, they're ready for the real thing. Give me something to chew on. Don't give me milk anymore. And Paul says to one of the churches, he says, you should be ready for meat, but you're not. I have to keep giving you milk. And so we think as Christians that maturity is one of these things that we aspire to and we want to grow, we want to mature, and that's true and that's good. But we never mature, we never grow out of a healthy realization that we will always be children of God. In the fact that we always need our Heavenly Father's forgiveness, His mercy, His grace on a daily basis. So I want you to see this. If you'll look there in the text, starting in verse 36, Jesus is invited into this house. This is a Pharisee, an expert in the law. Many times the Pharisees would try to get Jesus by himself and ask him questions, legal questions, to see how he would answer. And they call him rabbi because he was a teacher. And many followed him because of his teaching. He goes into the Pharisee's house. He reclines at the table. And so his feet are over probably to his left as he's reclining like they would probably at the Last Supper. And this woman comes. She is well known in the city. She is probably uh, well known for all the wrong reasons. If you catch my drift. She comes into the house. That's the first step of boldness. To come in off the street and to go into a private home, the home of a Pharisee, 
to follow Jesus, to not be in the inner circle, but to just stay on the outside, the fringes of the inner circle, if she could just be close enough to Jesus to worship him and wash his feet with her hair and her tears and a vial of costly perfume. The audacity to enter into that room. The Pharisee, we see, was unaware of three things. Now, I want you to write these down if you, if you take notes. The Bible says this woman came in, standing behind him at his feet. She was weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. She kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Verse 39 is a key verse. Because we learn something about this Pharisee, but also what God wants you to know and me to know about the truth of this passage. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, that's key there, he says to himself, he, he didn't utter this openly where everybody could hear him, much less Jesus. But Jesus knows his heart. He knows what he's thinking. He knows your thoughts as well. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, so you see right there, he's, he's still on the fence about Jesus. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So the expectation is what? The expectation is, number one, if Jesus is a prophet, he's not even going to the Messiah, the Christ, the one who can forgive sins. This woman wouldn't have been doing this just for any prophet. Just because Jesus was a prophet, she would not enter in and, and throw herself at his feet and waste all of this on him and make a spectacle of herself. No, she believed he was divine. He has the authority to make me right with my maker. But the Pharisee is still on the fence. He might not have even gotten on the fence yet to be on the fence. Because he's still questioning whether or not Jesus is a prophet. Had he known, he would not have let her near him. She wouldn't have touched him. He would not have allowed this. Verse 40, Jesus answered and said to him, I have something to say to you, Simon. Isn't he gracious and kind to, to, to insert himself into Simon's heart and say, we're going to have a conversation about this. He could have written him off, couldn't he? He could have said, you know what? My father has sent me as a physician to heal the sick. You don't think you're sick? See you later. He not only has compassion on the woman who comes and makes a spectacle of herself, who has a reputation in the city for being a sinner, the lowest of sinners, he has compassion on the Pharisee too. And he says, let's talk about this. And so, he tells a story of a money lender and two debtors. One owes 500 Denarii, the other one owes 50. He forgives them both, wipes their slate clean, and then Jesus asks Simon, he says, now, you tell me, which one 
will love him more. He, he appeals to Simon's ability to reason, to think about these things, right? Let's just, you're a Pharisee, you're a lawyer, you handle legal matters. Let's talk about debtors. Let's talk about people who are in debt to others. This is going to have further implications for Simon when he learns later on the fullness of the gospel message preached through the apostles and through Paul who are going to say that this is the gospel, that Jesus paid your debt. All of it. Well, no, Jesus can't pay all my debt. My debt's too big. He, he could probably pay this person's debt or this person's debt, but he can't pay mine. I have racked up so much spiritual debt, he could not forgive me. You don't understand how my life has worked up to this point. Jesus is sending you today a clear signal from this passage, but he's sending Simon one too. And that is, it doesn't matter what your debt is. The blood of Jesus wipes it all clean. You are fully forgiven in Christ. And so he appeals to his reasoning. There was a money lender. Aha, Simon thinks. Now you're speaking my language. Let's talk about this. And he answers correctly in verse 42. Jesus is not disagreeing with Simon. He says, you're absolutely right. The one who has been forgiven the most will show the most love. They will love him more. And then he compares, verse 44 through 50, he compares the way that the woman treated Jesus in Simon's home to the way that Simon, the Pharisee, treated him. He draws a comparison. He says, since I've come into this home, she has not ceased to do this and to do this and to do this. You didn't even offer me a drink. You didn't offer me water for cleansing. You didn't, you didn't offer me any of these things. And he wasn't saying, Simon, you're a rude man. <laughs> he wasn't saying that. He was saying, he was basically, what he was doing, he was picking up a, a spiritual mirror. And he was saying to Simon, I want you to look right here. I want you to look right here in this mirror. He wasn't condemning him for the things he didn't do. He was just saying, Simon, here's a reflection. You've got questions for me. Am I really a prophet? Do I really know do I really know who this woman is? I just told you what your thoughts were. You don't think that I know who this woman is? I can interpret your thoughts. I know what you're thinking. Even before you think it. He was saying to this Pharisee, he was saying, here's a question I want to pose to you. Do you think you are in debt to God? Do you think that you are someone like this person who owed 500? Or do you think of yourself like the one who probably owes about 50? I don't know much. Not near as much as this person. That's what Jesus is inviting him to think about. He's, that's what he invites us to think about in the gospel. And your friends and families and this world that we live in. Before, before Jesus can save and before he... He comes across as our Savior. We have to see that we're sinners. We have to see him for who he is. So that before the hope of salvation comes. The realization of the fact that I need a Savior. Has to be true. 
The hope that we extend has to be reasonable. When we as Christians remove sin and sinfulness and the fallenness of humanity from the gospel, we take the teeth out of hope. Hope doesn't mean anything anymore. Jesus chose to share the truth with this man to say there's teeth in hope. I can't extend you hope. He would say to the Pharisee, you're not going to understand hope until you understand your need to trust. So the Pharisee was unaware of these three things. Number one, the woman's faith. He was not aware of the woman's faith. He was unaware of it. He didn't interpret her actions as her seeing her need for a savior. The second thing that he was unaware of, obviously, was Jesus' identity. He didn't know who Jesus was. He was still trying to figure out some things about Jesus, but he wasn't exactly sure. Maybe that's you today. You're still trying to find out. You're trying to figure out who Jesus is. And you're, you're like this Pharisee who's kind of sitting over with his arms crossed. And other people are testifying about what Jesus has done. Other people are falling on their feet and worshiping Christ. And you're still on the fence and you're wondering, well, I'm not sure yet. I need more evidence. He wasn't convinced of Jesus' identity. Until you're convinced of Jesus' identity, and by the way, that happens as the Holy Spirit speaks to you and breaks your heart and you say yes. But until that happens, until we're convinced of Jesus' identity, we'll not see our need for him as our Savior. And then the third thing, and perhaps the most important, I think, here in this passage, is he was unaware of his own sin and his own need of Jesus. He was not self-aware. In Romans 8, turn over to Romans 8 in your Bibles. Romans 8, 24 and 25. Paul's writing to the church. You know this. We've been in the book of Romans for a year and a half. <laughs> Verse 24, he says, For in hope we have been saved. In what? In hope. Romans eight twenty four. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. When I read this, I'm always reminded of Thomas, the disciple who many have called the Doubting Thomas. Why do we call him Doubting Thomas? Because when news of the resurrection of Christ reaches him, he says, I will not believe unless I can see him. Unless I can put my hands, my, unless I can see his nail-pierced hands and his spear-pierced side. Unless I can see him, I will not believe. And Jesus comes and he allows him to touch him and to see. And he says, you're blessed, but blessed are those who don't see and believe. That's what hope is. Hope is substantiated. Hope is reasonable because it is putting trust in something that is not seen. Now, Jesus is actually in the flesh, in this man's home, and still he doesn't 
believe in Jesus. Jesus has casted out demons. He's performed miracles. He's healed the sick. He's told this man his very thoughts. And yet he does not believe that he is the Son of God. Nor does he think that he has need for any hope. He thinks he sees clearly. And he has no need for hope. But this woman is contrasted to him in that she has no idea what's going to happen. She has no idea what's going to happen when she follows Jesus into this house, the house of a Pharisee, a legal professional who knows who she is. Everybody knows who she is. She can't see what's going to happen on the other side of that. She's not trying to figure that out. She's going into this blindly. All she knows is that Jesus can save me. That's all she believes. And she follows him in there. She's unaware of what's going to happen after this. And she makes a complete spectacle of herself. All the while the Pharisee is sitting back with his arms crossed thinking, oh my goodness. Does he not know who she is? Maybe he's not a prophet. Maybe he's, maybe he's not a prophet. He's definitely not the Christ. I, I think we need a good dose. I do. I think the church does. I think our church in America does for sure. We need a Holy Spirit dose of spectacular hope. The type of hope that we, we put our trust in God and we move forward, we're not hoping in the economy. We're not hoping that, that maybe when COVID ends or maybe when inflation ends or when we get a new government or when we have a new governor or when I change jobs or when I'm liberated from this or that or whatever. Our hope is not in those things. Our hope is actually in Christ. We like this woman rush into a house that we have no idea what's going to happen. We only know that Jesus saves and that's where our hope is and we don't anticipate anything after that. It's all, all of our chips are, are on Jesus. We need more of that spectacular hope that makes us do things that most people would not do. Are we a spectacular group of followers of Jesus? Are we a spectacular church? Is, is your family spectacular? Are you spectacular in your faith? And not spectacular, I don't mean like amazing. We use that word all the time. I mean like spectacle type of spectacular following Jesus wherever and not overthinking what's going to happen next I struggle with that y'all I do I'm a planner I'm task oriented I like to have be three steps ahead of things and most of the time I'm three steps behind of things but I like to think that I'm ahead but God calls us to a spectacular hope a hope that anticipates only the things that God can do not the things that I can do in my own power or that we can do in our own power. When we look to the future, do we have that kind of hope? In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, you're going to go, you're going to be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in power. You're going to go out. You're going to go throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth and you're going to be my witnesses. 
He sends them out. Now this is after the resurrection. This is definitely after several years after Jesus speaks with this Pharisee in his house. But in Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that Peter addressed a large group there and he preached to many, most of them Jews, a large crowd. He preached the gospel. And he said to them, this Jesus delivered up by God at your hands, you nailed him to a cross. He rose again. The Bible says that there were thousands of people who heard this message and it said they were cut to the heart. And they cried out, what shall we do to be saved? I picture maybe this Pharisee in that crowd who was on the fence here who was saying, I don't think he really is who he claims to be or who people say that he is. I'm still on the fence. I would love to think that he was one of those in Acts chapter 2 who heard the gospel and remembered the mercy of Jesus on this woman who came into the room and bathed his feet in her hair and kissed his feet. I want to think that this Pharisee was there hearing that sermon and thinking of that woman and thinking, man, I missed it. I didn't know. And now I believe. I believe he is who he said he was. Could it be that he began to have the same hope in a Savior that this woman did? That he gave up all of his self-righteousness? That he gave up all of his rational scheming and planning and all those things? And when he heard that sermon preached by Peter, like the woman, he fell at the feet of Jesus. Heart torn in two crying out in desperation, not holding anything back. Peter says to all of those who responded to his sermon that way, who asked, what shall we do to be saved? He said, repent. Turn. And be baptized. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. There's a verse in the Old Testament where the prophet says to the people of God, the arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save. That is, that the people of God can, can sin and wonder, but God, because He is God and because He is good and merciful, His arm is not so short that it can't save you. The arm of the Lord is long. He can reach you no matter where you are or where you go. And we hear that and, and it sounds right to us and we hear the prodigal son story, the, the son who leaves home and God is merciful, but here's something that we don't hear much of and it's, it's just as true. The arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save those in the religious world who wander off, but it's also not so long that the Pharisees and the hypocrites and the religious people, it's not, the arm of the Lord is not so long that you don't need his arm. Sometimes we think the arm of mercy and the idea of hope, that's for people who are just far off. 
They're far off. The people around the nations of the world where we send missionaries, that's where, those are the ones who need hope. Not so. It's for all of us. Because we all need the arm of the Lord. Amen? Whether we're far off or where we're close. So imagine all of those Pharisees in the crowd hearing the message from Peter. The promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord is pleased to call unto himself. It's through the gospel that he calls us. He's calling you now if you've never believed in him. He extends hope to you. But hope is real. It's not just a word to make you feel good. Will you enter into the house desperate, making a spectacle of yourself? Will you enter into the Lord's presence and say, Lord, nothing is holding me back. I don't have my arms crossed. I'm not trying to figure all this out. I just know that I need you. He says, come. Welcome. Come. If you're still trying to figure it out, I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to you in a way that arrests your attention and your heart so that you would surrender to Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as you are praying for your loved ones and your family members and your neighbors, know this. There is hope. Always. There is hope in Christ. I want to encourage you to continue to rest in it, to live in it, and to share it with others.